welcome to the latest episode of High Stakes. I'm Paige Soya, the Managing Director of K Street Capital. A uh, little bit under the weather today, so my voice definitely sounds worse than I actually feel. Um, but uh, this today's episode is going to be about AI and the impacts of AI and chat GPT on the edtech landscape, the venture capital-backed edtech landscape specifically, and in behavioral science. And we have um, perspectives today from Drew Magliozzi, who's the CEO founder of Mainstay, which is one of our portfolio companies at K Street, and uh, Chris Graves, who's the CEO and founder of the Lively Center for Behavioral Science, um, as well as a number of other things he'll share. Uh, and he's one of our investors at K Street. Uh, so with that, why don't we do some introductions and then we'll jump right in. So Chris, do you wanna go first? Thanks very much. Thanks Paige and thanks Drew for having me. Uh, I'm Chris Graves. I'm uh, in my third career or fourth or fifth career. I don't know what, whether you count waiting tables or not. But uh, I had started out in the news business where I was the head of a couple of TV news networks, uh, global TV news networks, and then moved into the world of communications about 20 years ago at Ogilvy, formerly known as Ogilvy and Mather, the ad age, uh, the, the Mad Men era agency. And about um, seven years ago, founded within Ogilvy, the Ogilvy Center for Behavioral Science. I, I did that uh, after winning a Rockefeller Foundation Bellagio residency in behavioral science. My work is from FEMA to pharma to fakes. So I work in communicating uh, risk for FEMA. I work in combating vaccine hesitancy and uh, other uh, ills in pharma. And I work uh, on occasion with uh, agencies to combat disinformation, all of which through a lens of behavioral science. Great, thanks, Chris. And Drew? That's a tough act to follow. Uh, I'm Drew Maliazzi, CEO of Mainstay, co-founder. Um, before this, I uh, ran a tutoring company in the greater Boston area. And you know, I've always felt pretty connected to education as the greatest vehicle for socioeconomic change in our society. And I've also always been a little bit uh, disenchanted with the fact that it typically leaves those with the most to gain behind. And so I think there's tremendous opportunity to level the playing field and drive uh, remarkable business results in the process for institutions. So hence mainstay, uh, we use conversational AI, uh, and it's essentially a student and staff retention platform that has an everyday conversation with people to help them do the things that drive momentum to their goals and overcome the little things that tend to trip people up along the way. Uh, and we tend to use quite a lot of behavioral science in the mix, basically how you talk to people to help them overcome challenges and do the things that lead to successful behaviors. Uh, someone once called us Noom for college and career, which I will uh, politely accept if it puts us on the path to being a unicorn. Uh, and I'm excited for this conversation and generally speaking, the two trends in society which are converging right now, which is the science of uh, artificial intelligence, as well as the science of human behavior, motivation and mindset and sort of the language that we use to talk to people that inspires them to take action and how you can scale it with AI is 
the intersection that is of, of, of acute interest to me. So I think this is going to be a great conversation. Can't wait. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Drew. This should be a super interesting conversation. Um, so let's talk about how AI has factored into personality trait science, and which is part of the work that you've done, Chris, to understand why humans behave the way that they do. Um, and maybe you can talk a little bit about your platform, which is which is mostly research based, I understand. And, and you guys have this award winning tool um, that I think you invented, Chris, right, called the profiler. Yes, um, yeah. It, it's actually um, an innovation rather than a pure invention, I would say, because we took peer-reviewed science and tools that had never been integrated before and then modified to de-bias some of the responses and the desirability bias in particular. In other words, within personality trait science, you can ask a, a traditional 300 question Likert scored survey or a 10 question version, or you could make it a visual version or a forced choice between this or this. And if I were to give you a kind of forced choice between being say, Cersei Lannister or Oprah, you would say you're probably more Oprah than Cersei. And that's a desirability bias for a lot of people. Or if I said, are you more George Costanza from Seinfeld or more Hermione Granger uh, from Harry Potter within the, the, the realm of conscientiousness, very few people want to identify in a way that you know anyway that they are closer to George Costanza. So we had to work hard over a number of years at large scale to debias the traditional scientific measures for things like personality traits. We did this, we, we created this beyond personality traits. It's one of about 20 different tests. We test also for things like um, uh, cognitive styles such as regulatory focus. Regulatory focus is both a trait and a state. And for humans, the easiest way to understand it is, are you pre-wired to play to win? meaning take risks. Uh, if you were in tennis, you'd be like Nadal and, and hit the outside of the lines on the court or Steph Curry always going for three pointers. Or are you pre-wired to play not to lose? Uh, and they're not equal. And a lot depends on how you're wired and, and how you're wired, about half of these things are uh, heritable. Um, and so there are a number of those kinds of of tests that we give. And the point of it is a kind of programmatic empathy. If we can better decode you, then the next step is how we engage you. Um, and how we engage you could either lead to a culture clash if we've not decoded you, witness the United States on things like mandates over mask wearing or vaccination. Uh, suddenly, what had started as a health and science issue became a tribal cultural issue. So we found tremendous backfires uh, in achieving goals if you do not first empathetically, programmatically decode individuals at scale. Once you've done that, you try to engage them. And by engage, I mean the word choice, the tonality, the framing, everything matters. And so whether it's Drew's work, for example, in EdTech, or whether you're FEMA trying to convey the risk of not mitigating uh, in advance of a natural disaster, 
or whether you're trying to combat disinformation online. How you are wired is everything about the tactics I will take to try to move you off that position. So, Chris, I'm curious if you guys have been using AI with some of this data you've collected or if there's if it's already embedded in, in your platform or, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I started when ChatGPT 3 or 3.5 was released immediately uh, using it. And I wanted to query it as to its knowledge because it was, you know, it was fed. It was an LLM and it had been curated and fed and was cut off in 21. And I was curious about its knowledge on really arcane, not just areas of behavioral science, but the nexus, for example, of health and behavioral science. Uh, and it was um, surprisingly knowledgeable. Here's the problem. Um, I asked it, as you would uh, in science, to cite its references. Um, and it did immediately. And I, I thought, this is incredible, because whenever I give a talk, or write something, you know, it's, it's a really laborious thing, but you've got to cite every single thing you assert with scientific studies. And so it did instantly, and I thought, my God, what a labor and time saver until I double checked them. Uh, and not, <laughs> not any of them existed. It had fabricated every single resource reference and citation. So I, I, I badgered it a little bit, and I said, do you understand that it's unacceptable to fabricate scientific references? And ChatGPT responded, uh, I apologize, I'm an LLM. Um, but yes, uh, it is unacceptable and may even be dangerous, leading to disinformation. So I said, try it again. And uh, this time, use only real sources and citations. And it went and spit out another 20, none of which exist. So uh, a big eye-opener for the research community when we saw this about the trustworthiness, not of the knowledge, but of the citation or source of the knowledge. It's the way I've described it is a, an analogy that imagine I fed you billions of books, but I read pages out of their covers. So you didn't know what book your knowledge came from. But you're smart enough to make up a title of a book that plausibly those pages might have come from. And that's really what it was doing. That's going to improve, and already there are curated versions like Cite, S-C-I-T-E, .i, that already use closed sets of research so that they try to overcome that. So one is using AI for the knowledge side of it. But where I found it even more helpful is I work a lot with pharma and training uh, medical science liaisons and physicians, and creating uh, simulated dialogues has been really, really helpful. So for example, for a physician, I will give the physician and uh, uh, I will prompt the, the AI with a physician and with the um, uh, character, in this case, say the parent of a small child. And the parent has come to see the physician because it's time for vaccinations, but the parent is very concerned about vaccinating their child. And they may be concerned for one of more than two dozen reasons, by the way. There are very granular reasons and combinations of reasons. It was approved too quickly. I don't know what the ingredients are. I don't know what the long-term side effects might be. All of these. So you can prompt the AI, not just with the concerns of the patient, 
but how that patient is wired. You can prompt the AI with its personality traits of the patient, with their cognitive styles, and now ask it to run a dialogue between the doctor and the patient for that specific patient, empathetically taking on board that inner wiring, something we call a kind of sense-making genome, that the doctor will be able to practice. And, and instead of just sort of a, you know, irritated, trust me, follow the science, and not getting a good reaction, they may have very quickly, almost instantaneously, a simulated empathetic dialogue with a patient who is very concerned. And that is very helpful. Got it. Okay, so I was going to ask you how this has evolved, but I think you just gave a great example answering that. And Drew, I, I'm curious if that's how you guys think about it with your students, because there's so many different types of students at so many different types of universities, and I can't imagine how many personality profiles there might even be. Uh, there are a lot of similarities, for sure. Uh, I will say we didn't start out with that level of sophistication, but we certainly evolved to it. You know, we started the company in 2014 and launched with our first customer in 2016. And so, you know, we've gone and seen at least a couple of really game-changing revolutions, the latest being the biggest, in how AI is actually able to simulate these conversations. At first, we were just, you know, nudging people based on the tasks they needed to do and responding to their questions, uh, sometimes at two in the morning. And AI was super helpful for being able to do that. Uh, not only predict when you might need a nudge, but also understand what you were trying to ask so we could get you the right answer. I think the areas that we've seen tremendous success, and, and by the way, um, Chris, you'll be fond with this, we love research at Mainstay. Typically what we're doing is taking uh, the behavioral science techniques that have been proven to work in the small scale and, and scale them up pretty radically and then study them. So we've actually run uh, in the life of the business about 10 randomized controlled trials that have been peer reviewed and published. So we love putting ourselves to the utmost scrutiny. <clears throat> and the areas that we are currently working on innovating uh, are exactly aligned to what you're talking about, which essentially are we get tons of questions around dates and deadlines and fact-based things. When's the financial aid form due? So we love research. We love randomized controlled trials and holding up as, our, ourselves to as much scrutiny as possible. Um, while we've had tremendous success helping people take the actions, we've also had uh, tremendous success getting people to be more vulnerable with us. In fact, they tell us all the time, uh, I feel more comfortable sharing my insecurities and vulnerabilities with this bot than I would walking into a stranger's office. And so we get these questions all the time, like I'm homesick or I'm thinking of dropping out or I'm not sure I belong in college. And these are the types of questions fascinating, have no answer. Um, they are uh, merely human uh, anxieties. And so typically what we had done is escalate these to a human being, an advisor or counselor, and say, hey, you know, you should really intervene here. We found a diamond in the rough and you need to lean in and do the uniquely human thing. But we uh, had the luxury of working with some of the best behavioral science and cognitive scientists in, in the world. Uh, Dave Yeager at UT Austin, Mark Brackett at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, 
a handful of folks at uh, Stanford. Um, and they analyzed the data that the human advisors uh, gave when they responded. And typically people fell into one of two categories when they responded to one of these, you know, high socio-emotional issues. They were either the cheerleader, which is, Chris, I believe in you, you've got this. Uh, all you have to do is put your head down and power through. Here's a link to a resource that should help. Um, best of luck. Or they are the dictator, which is, the, here's the litany of things. Here's the five things you need to do in order to succeed. Otherwise, you're going to fail. Boom, 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 boom. And the science is pretty clear that neither one of those techniques really motivates people to take action and change their behaviors. Um, but instead of a cheerleader, essentially what folks need is a coach. And the four elements of elite coaching are exactly what you were talking about, Chris. Number one is validate with empathy, which is, hey, you're scared or nervous, struggling, and it's totally normal. Second thing, instead of being an authority figure, can you position yourself as a collaborative resource? And you know what? I'm going to help you. Together, we can work through this. Not I'm going to tell you what to do, but we're going to do it as, as equals. Third, and this is on stunning because it's so easy, but very few people ever do it. Just ask follow-up questions. Tell me more. What have you tried that hasn't worked? Um, you know, and just draw somebody out so that they can share the picture. And then the fourth one is uh, help them reframe struggle as an opportunity for learning and growth. Have you ever been in a situation where you struggled, worked through it, and been better off because you did? So what we ended up doing is fine-tuning an LLM, specifically GPT-3, and then you know subsequent versions, now GPT-4, uh, is quite good at following prompts and guides to basically be able to mimic these behaviors. Not so much that we would do them in lieu of an advisor, but actually what we're doing is showing these suggested prompts and responses to human advisors so that they can actually respond as elite coaches rather than cheerleaders, basically elevate the conversation. It has three fundamental effects, which are awesome. One, it gets better support for the students we're trying to serve. Two, it actually is like a micro training for the advisors uh, to try these behaviors on. And three, it allows them to actually tweak the messages uh, and edit them for their own purposes. Hey, how am I gonna respond using this as the baseline at my institution for my students, given the resources we have available? And then that's more training data in the learning loop for us to just get better and better and better with more iterations. It's really a fascinating approach that I think has tremendous opportunity. And that's just one persona you know, we're shifting our mindset around what we're doing because, look, as you look at Google and Microsoft in an AI-powered arms race to be the, you know, oracle that can answer all of your questions automatically, like, that's not a race we're primed to win or even compete with. Like, let's let them duke it out. What we're mostly focused on is situating ourselves in this area of how can we motivate and inspire people to take action and there are many other personas, not just the coach. There's the planning persona. There's the basic needs persona for somebody who's struggling with food or housing insecurity, for example. Um, there is a goal setting persona. There is, uh, you know, a career coach persona. And there are about a dozen personas. And that true. What what triggers the matching or the switching out of personas? So imagine yeah. you you know you've now divined, inferred.
I need a different persona, not the coach persona, for example. Tell me about that process. How does it happen that you've dis, you've you've figured out, or or the AI has figured out, time to ship personas? Uh, how do you? Uh, do we have that? another model trained on that, uh, Chris. So there are two ways. One, we start the conversation, which is, hey, it's time to plan your study study plan. I'm just gonna make something up, uh, and we'll start a prompt, which we'll manually write, and it'll be an open response question. And then we'll bring in the personas uh, that is appropriate for that conversation to do sort of a multi-turn back and forth. So that's like us orchestrating the persona for you and basically serving it on a silver platter. We also have another um, uh, uh, machine learning model that's able to predict which persona you need. Hey, do you need the question answering persona? Do you need the motivator persona? And what, depending on what you ask, uh, will sort of turn to face you with the persona that best matches. And um, when you think of that best match, imagine I need the coach persona. Yeah. Are there different flavors of coach persona or is there the coach? And the reason I ask is what we've seen now and in, in all the flavors of humans is it's so important to match not just the role, yes. but the kind of empathy of that role. So for example, we're looking at now in UX and UI and in chatbots, their ability to infer who you are very quickly using uh, language parsing, tonality, things like that, and then mirror, not in a way that sends you down a vortex of bad health, but mm -hmm. in a way that feels comfortable for you. So for example, a, a UI will actually morph based on not your demonstrated behavior of where you click, but on uh, your uh, hints and tells, like in a poker game, about whether you are more external or internal locus of control, more prevention yeah. or promotion focused in your regulatory focus, lower or higher in neuroticism. And by gauging that, imagine that the UI, UX, or chatbot morphs into something that feels more comfortable to you. Is that where you're headed as well? Yeah, uh, we haven't That's gone cool. to that level of sophistication just yet. Uh, we only will um, sort of showcase the things that you have explicitly told us. So for instance, if we say, we have a goal setting conversation, if you say the reason you wanna go graduate from college is to make your mother proud uh, yeah. and you career aspiration is to be a diplomat and you're studying political science, you know, we will incorporate those that attributes yeah. that we've specifically saved in you. We don't yet include all of those psychographic things because I don't think we can successfully infer them. But if you tell us, hey, I need, uh, you know, a type of support that is X instead of Y, I need a, I, I prefer someone who's a little bit more tough love with me than someone who is giving me yep. TLC. We can, we can definitely show up in that way. Um, but we actually, worked with a, we worked <laughs> with a company that had a, uh, an interesting business model, which was their clientele were the worst patients and their business model was to save insurers money because the patients do not get any of their self care or preventative care. And they go to the hospital and implode and cost millions of dollars. 
So mm-hmm. the patients that we were working with were anxiety, depression, obesity, morbid obesity, substance abuse, smoking. And the problem we found with the explicit was they lied or did not want to tell us. And so we needed to infer uh, implicitly who they were and what they were really struggling with to then inform that engagement in in a way that would be more effective than a standardized engagement for them. So they may not actually tell us even though it's a, you know, if you were talking to a chatbot, you made a great point about people being less embarrassed or ashamed or humiliated by telling the truth to a chatbot. But there, they may not actually be able to articulate what it is. And so we found that by connecting with something like um, linguistic inquiry and word count, um, the man James Pennebaker who created that now used mm-hmm. uh, by AI to decode language. It's a kind of text mining and parsing that with a pretty good uh, accuracy rate can give us back a profile of that person, which now means that let's say you're wired for prevention and not for promotion. We're not going to tease you with opportunity because that's not how you're wired. We're going to we're going to reassure you with that you're not going to fail, which is how you're wired in this case. And so it creates a complete pivot in language and tonality because you're prevention wired, not promotion wired. That is fascinating. Now, I'm a big believer, I'm curious you bring up the healthcare area, that we need a sort of Hippocratic oath when it comes to AI, particularly in things like education, healthcare, sort of this do no harm, because I think what what we're scratching at are some amazingly high potential things, but also for good and for abuse. I'm curious how you think about that, Chris, in terms of, um, you know, these areas of persuasion, how they might be misused. And yeah. well, can we get can we get the AI to, to sign off on that oath, you think, eventually? <laughs> at least the people who make it. Drew, Drew this, sure. is, this is a colossal fear that humans at their most vulnerable are these mental health and physical health issues, for example, or their vulnerabilities, their psychological vulnerabilities. And once you've gleaned them, first of all, there's no regulation that would prevent you from inferring them. You could do it right now, today, unhindered, as long as this person has anything that's out there in the open, right? If I've done an interview and it's on YouTube, I could scrape the interview, parse the language of that interview and have a pretty accurate map to vulnerabilities. Uh, That's not regulated. I can look at uh, eye tracking. I can look at music choices. Um, I can be able to tell if you're going to descend into a depressive state from a change in music behaviors. All of these things that we see as just benign and, and normal human activity are actually tells. And we don't know that. And there's nothing to prohibit others from scraping that, doing that, and using that against us. There's zero regulation about that for anything you've put out there. So I think it's the Hippocratic Oath is, you know, worse uh, than do no harm. It's actively seek to do harm, and it's not not regulated. And today there were hearings about regulation of AI, but I'm always reminded of the Saturday Night Live skit when Zuckerberg was pulled in front of Congress and they uh, did an impersonation of an elderly senator saying, Mr. Zuckerberg, 
My VCR is flashing 1200. Did you do that? And I just think that we're 30 years behind in terms of understanding how and what to regulate. And of course, inventors are terrified that out of fear, they'll get regulated that'll hamper invention and innovation. It's a very thorny issue that you, you rightly bring up. Yeah, the game theory of it is, you know, very unlikely to get everyone to coalesce around any, you know, self-imposed regulation because you, the incentives of disobeying and while everyone else slows down, you accelerate. Yeah. Uh, great. Absolutely. Which is yeah. why I once asked the deputy secretary of defense, a man named Robert Work, uh, what had kept him up at night. And at the time, he told me uh, autonomous warfare. Um, not because of the old movie scenario where, you know, it was quite that blunt, but that the human values as a lens inserted upon AI in America will slow it down. And those values are super important to us, say, as an American culture. But what about a, uh, a rogue state that actually has no interest in those values and has found it can act more swiftly without putting any human values into AI. And so you're not actually AI against AI, it's AI that you've tried to in some way imbue with your cultural values that may give the enemy a little edge. If the readers or listeners rather are interested in this topic, Max Tegmark's Life 3.0 is a pretty compelling screed on this uh, toward the end of the book. yeah, there needs to be some regulation, but also, as you say, all it takes is one bad actor uh, on the fringes to, uh, well, do tremendous harm. So, Drew, I have two questions for you, uh, changing the topic a little bit here. One is kind of one of, kind of a silly question that I've always wondered and never asked you, um, but in the vein of AI, like when you have these students asking things, these emotional things that they feel more comfortable talking to a chatbot about, and you guys, you, you've built this technology to automatically respond to them in an empathetic, empathetic way. Do you ever get responses back from the students that are like, screw you, how are you going to help me? You're just a chatbot. Like, is that a common thing? I would imagine it would be, but maybe this is just what I would say. <laughs> uh, it's not Im- uncommon. I would say, you know, the, one of the heartwarming things about uh, what we do is the number one most common sentiment that people express to us is gratitude. Thank you. <laughs> is the number one uh, highest frequency message that we get, which is funny because, uh, and I think this has to do with the medium of text message, but if I won't name my other assistant that's on my phone because she will respond, but um, if you, I don't thank uh, my phone when it does something that I ask it to do, but for some reason there's an intimacy also over text message that encourages that. Uh, and certainly we have people who um, <laughs> mess with us, let's just put it that way. But far, but it's, you know, thousand to one ratio of people who are more thankful and appreciative. And I think that's mostly because we're engaging with first gen, low income, historically resilient populations largely, who really have no place else to turn for support. And, you know, so the, the bar is low for giving them tremendous benefit and, um, and getting some goodwill in response. That's super. But what degree, Drew, have uh, related to that the actual name of a chatbot uh, and any accent or language 
uh, it may use regional accent, for example, or one that may betray a certain demographic. To what degree does that engender trust or lose trust? Yeah, in fact, it's funny. Um, typically, you know, we are embodying the mascot of a school. So we work with about 240 schools. Uh, and they actually oftentimes have personas. Uh, I won't name which one, but we have a school in New Jersey that we work with. Uh, and they are very clear. They're like, our chatbot's an asshole. Uh, and it'll swear. <laughs> and they are <laughs> deliberate about uh making that persona be very Jersey. And as a result, there is a strange kinship it has with its students. Uh, I'm sure not all of them are uh, pleased when it swears, but um, it's not saying anything too acerbic, don't worry. But uh, there is certainly a sense that like we are uh, creating a persona very much so like a person who puts on the the outfit and dances on the football field is doing every Saturday on a, a college stadium. Uh, we're doing the same thing, but over text message and deliberately trying to embody the brand of the school in the form of this uh, AI personality. It's really right, fast. So you've already got a cultural icon that that's very clear. Yes, exactly. And then we do have our own AI uh, assistant, Ollie, which is our mascot at the company. And, you know, we, we talked to quite a lot of people with this one and we have a, the, the ability to whole cloth craft a new persona that they're going to relate to. And it's actually still pretty darn effective, but this is ours is less swearing, more like uh, avuncular, uncular, uh, you know, and, and supportive mentor than, uh, you know, someone you're going to cut off in traffic on the New Jersey turnpike. Yeah. You know, funny, but Hollywood, mis you know, just by accident often leads on these things. And when C-3PO was made, it was imbued with the personality traits of high neuroticism. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, one, one more question for you guys, just coming up on time. And I'm thinking about the venture environment because, you know, Chris, you're an investor in this environment and we're seeing more and more deals. It seems like every deal has the word AI in it now. And it's maybe it did before, but somehow people are paying more attention to it now. I don't know. Um, part of it's a marketing scheme, TBD. But like Drew, for you, you guys have been employing AI for, for a very long time. And I guess, and, and you also closed a relatively recent fundraise. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. like, what were the perspectives from VCs in, in that fundraise on AI? What were they looking for? And Chris, feel free to jump in. Like, what would you be looking for in a tech platform? that, you know, your views on AI, whether it's necessary or not. And if it is, you know, what about it is the sort of like key indicator of success? Well, as you know, we closed the round just before ChatGPT was launched. So we probably could have justified it. I know, right? Everything. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I obviously like there is this wor world where you sprinkle AI on it and suddenly, you, you know, you're getting a, a 30x uh, multiple. You know, I, I things I would look for are business fundamentals if I were in the investor seat. Um, I, I, you know, and I think the one thing about AI companies is the playbook hasn't been written for us on how you take one from zero to outlandish success. Uh, there are these massive companies, Google, Amazon, which etc., which have integrated AI into their stacks as they've grown to be juggernauts. But very few companies that are AI first that have grown from zero to, you know, unicorn, um, except maybe like ChatGPT or OpenAI, which uh, is making ludicrous pitches. 
the one thing, the one book I would recommend for uh, VCs and entrepreneurs is the AI First Company by Ash Fontana. Uh, I think that's the closest thing to a playbook for the space. And he does have one, it's like a throwaway sentence in I think like the second to last chapter where he says something to the effect of the aspiring AI entrepreneur would be well advised that instead of starting a company from scratch to acquire a services company and relentlessly chip away at its offering with artificial intelligence. And there's very much this world of like, do you build AI and sell it to the store or do you build the store with AI at the core? And we've definitely experienced a situation we sell it to the store or rather the higher ed institution. And they usually have between 20 and 40 X ROI where for every dollar they spend with us, they make 20 to $40 in net tuition revenue, which means we're actually not capturing the lion's share of the value we're creating. In fact, the, as an AI company, the really only way to capture the lion's share of the value you create is to be the store. And obviously it's a lot harder to start a higher ed institution, but I do think a lot of AI entrepreneurs could make outlandish uh, uh, outcomes for themselves and their stakeholders by being the store rather than selling to the store. Um, I'm curious what your take on it is, Chris. Well, there are a number of historical analogies that I see. Um, you know, there in 1999, every company renamed itself .com. Um, because that was, you know, had become the, the just the, the table stakes for being considered a modern company. Um, but even back then, things were not digital first. They were, you know, an analog world digitalized. And mm -hmm. so people were not thinking digital. And probably many, not until this pandemic, were really truly thinking digital as a reworking of everything, as opposed to converting atoms to bits, right? Um, so I think that, that there's a stage that we go through where things like dot-com or AI uh, go from magic to table stakes, but still have not been deeply or profoundly applied or exploited yet. And I, I think for when I look at it, I don't look at the magic and I don't care about the name. I want to know how it uh, about effectiveness. How mm. does it make things better, faster, less wasteful, um, uh, a, a, a making the wrong right? Um, and, and I look at those things as opposed to inventing something completely out of out of thin air. I give you an example. My daughter who's a software engineer, just started working for a company that is an AI-powered company that does legal uh, services for law firms and, and, and private equity and investors. Now, they don't compete with them at all, but mm -hmm. they do all of the highly templated and not so highly templated legal work for them because there are rules. Um, you know, and rules may be very complicated uh, and they may be complicated by different states of jurisdiction and what have you or countries, but the rules. And so for this, it is uh, an efficiency play more than an effectiveness play. But what you're doing, Drew, I think is effectiveness play because yes. it's not about the wringing out of waste so much as improving human behavior and relationships for a, a better, healthier outcome. And I ultimately think that, you know, there was a, 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 a maester who was a good Harvard Business School consultant to service firms. 
And he said he constantly, you know, harped on you have to differentiate between hygiene and health. Hygiene is what you do to wring out waste, to remove cost where you can, to improve efficiencies. Health is where you add value and giant leaps of outcomes. So I think, Drew, you're in a, a land of health rather than hygiene. And what I would be looking at in investment is, is this a hygiene play or is health play? And by health, I mean metaphorically, not literally in the health domain. But does it improve effectiveness as opposed to efficiency? Brilliant. I think yeah, it's super. I, yeah, go ahead. I was just uh, going to say that just like in the world where you know, we've already seen what happens when you bring the marginal cost of reproduction of digital goods to zero, like we saw it in uh, software and music. The world which we are about to embark on is a zero marginal cost of services, which is an astounding sea change, the ramifications of which I don't think we can possibly imagine today, but we'll look back on 10 years and say, holy smokes. Uh, that, and also the folks who get it right will be probably trillion dollar companies. Yeah. Sorry, you were gonna say something, Paige. No, I was just gonna add, I, I agree. And I think it's super interesting, the store analogy, because um, some of our other podcasts with other, uh, other of our founder CEOs, a lot, a lot has come up around how the data models get. What, what data model? What data does the AI train on, right? And if you are a store and you have a unique proprietary sort of niche data or whatever it is that's training the AI, then you you have an opportunity to build an AI uh, company, right? That's going to be very different from any of the competitors in your space. So it's it, and we're seeing sort of seeing more and more of that. There's another great book called Power and Prediction uh, is sequel to a handful of uh, University of Toronto professors wrote it sequel to a previous book called Prediction Machines. Prediction Machines is about what AI is, but this is about how to make the use of AI. And it's a fascinating argument, which is AI actually to be, it's to, to take full advantage of it requires infrastructure change. So the analogy they give is when electricity was invented, you know, Edison lights a light bulb and people see that and they say, oh, that's just an electric candle. That's no big deal. <laughs> It's only once there's a power grid and an infrastructure that and it's distributed and that infrastructure has been built, which took, I think, 40 or 50 years before the full advantages of electricity were realized. But and he gives the analogy of a factory and prior to electricity, you had you know steam driven factories and you had to bring the workers to the machine. And they'd be sitting near the machine to get the benefit of the power of said machine. But in electric an electric world, you could distribute the work. And actually, the electricity, by distributing the work, allowed you to create the assembly line. Mm -hmm. And it's the different infrastructure innovations that are going to come that are going to help people take full advantage of the technology. And it's almost impossible for existing firms to restructure themselves, to tear down an infrastructure and build back up a new one while uh, in op full operation. And so this idea of like, oh, there's probably some destructive innovation that's going to happen for the organizations that take full advantage of AI as a first principle rather than inevitably what everyone else who has an operating business typically thinks of it as is, oh, it's an efficiency play. I'm going to tack it on here and get a little bit of efficiency on the edges, whereas if you put it right smack dab in the middle, 
uh, Chris, I think you nailed it. Like you can have a transformational play, but it's a very rare company that's willing to even try something like that. So uh, to the innovators, ho hopefully will come the spoils. Totally agree. Awesome. Thanks, Drew. And any final thoughts or on, on AI or otherwise before we wrap? Chris, I'll let you go first while I think of something. Well, I think the, <laughs> for me, the, the, the irony of uh, AI is leveraging a non-human, cold, soulless thing to create empathy. Uh, yeah. So using AI as an empathy tool. And even if you think about learning and you think about an empathetic approach to people who may be on an autism spectrum or have learning challenges or disabilities, that what an incredibly patient and effective tool or even partner or coach, depending on the persona that Drew dials up, uh, that that could be. And, and so I, I find that ironically, you know, while the um, the Hollywood and TV and U.S. Capitol Hill fears of AI being a malevolent force that decides humans are not worth keeping around, I think it could possibly make humans better. 100% agree. Uh, the technology is neither good nor bad. It's just the people. It's a tool and how we choose to deploy it. And some people will probably deploy it for bad purposes, but, you know, I think the lion's share of humanity, I believe in the goodness of, will probably use it for good. The one thing I think people are oftentimes afraid of, will this take my job? And the answer is no, it's not going to take your job. But the person who is able to harness it and use it and 10x themselves in the process will take your job. And so the, it is incumbent upon all of us to be experimenters with this. And I think the way to think about it um, is really as an assistant or almost like an intern that has, you know, a bit of a novice streak to it, needs a lot of coaxing and coaching, and it might initially take as much work to do with the AI as it would to do it on your own, but the process of doing it will get you and it better. So I read an article recently that described it as a coworker with an alien mind with, that has access to all human knowledge is eager to please and also lies a lot. <laughs> and it's, it's a, like a funny mindset to wrap your arms around a coworker that has those attributes. But really what this is, is uh, a world in which we are all going to have coworkers that are these alien minds that we've got to co-create with on a daily basis. And those that are able to harness them for the greatest possible output are going to be the ones that lead in industries. And those that don't will find themselves looking for work. Uh, so it's going to be an interesting next decade. Uh, and Drew, I would just say that the twist I would put on that is it's probably not an alien mind. It is only the sum total of human minds, plural, <laughs> uh, for good <laughs> and bad. And uh, therein lies both the optimism and, and the horror some of the premature and I underscore premature studies I've seen about toxicity in terms of an AI becoming uh, a, ma a malevolent or malicious uh, behavior, beha uh, uh, actor, um, that it takes as little as 8% toxicity in the curated materials to convert it to 100% evil. So the big struggle philosophically is who is the curator and by what rules? 
Well, on that note, I think maybe there's a part two coming of this whole episode, but thank you guys so much (laughs) for being here. And that's a wrap for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks. Thank you.